all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 162 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this just happens to be the regular season of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the total number of baseball games each team plays during a regular season in Major League Baseball is 162. And with that Quick factoid about the number of games in baseball. I, of course, am your Houstonian-based... Houstonian-based? That doesn't even sound right. Whatever. I'm Matt, and coming to us all the way from California would be our Sony employee, Tim! So how are you doing, Matthew? Tell us about your past week. My past week was prepping uh, to make sure that... um, I was everything was pretty much ready to go for me to start school again this week. Although, how did you how how did you celebrate your it's official Wednesday last week? It's official Wednesday. Yes, you remember last week uh one of my news pieces, one of the myriad of news pieces that we had. One of them that I did was talking about how uh Star Wars was going to actually overtake it, like, very early in the week. It was going to overtake Avatar domestically. Oh, right, 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 right. Yes. Yes, that was, it was, it's official Wednesday, apparently, um, back on the 6th. Or the Sith. That didn't work. Um... So yeah, apparently that happened on Wednesday. So and, and it still has a way to go to catch Avatar though for worldwide at least, and it's going to be very interesting to see if it uh, maybe. I mean, if it catches up, if not that, or if it does, how quickly it will catch up. But then on top of that, I kind of want to like adjust the inflation price of Avatar's worldwide box office intake and see if Star Wars can match that. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, you have to remember, uh, it's like Gone with the Wind is still number one with box office inflation. Or, I'm sorry, box office, just adjusted for inflation and everything. But the way movies were made back then um, and produced changed, just like it really had with, by the time Avatar came out. You know, this was more or less a, uh, ooh, come look at this really cool CGI that's never been done this way before. So, I don't know. And then the whole IMAX 3D thing versus the non-3D, which is the same thing here for Force Awakens. I don't know. Number of tickets sold, though, is is a good indicator. So, craziness. I don't know. But that was pretty much my week last week. How was your week last week, sir? Good news for, I guess maybe maybe you, because I'll be able to respond to you quicker. I have a new phone. Yes, I finally have a, have a new phone. You're not going to see me or hear me or experience me try to log in my phone, push a button, wait five seconds, and then the button pushes itself. Push another button. It, it, it's also great whenever I'm trying to te- text... And so I'm typing out, you know, pushing all the buttons, and it makes a, you know, a, a full sentence worth of text. 
And I have to wait there and let the sucker, like, catch up. And it takes a good, you know, 35 seconds for it to all catch up. That's, that is what I was experiencing with my own old phone. So it was very tense and frustrating every time I had to use it, other than just answering a call. So now I have the upgraded model, the newer, nicer model, and the yet, you know, completely slow model. Yeah, which, you know, it will, it's an Android, so more likely it will get slow as time progresses. Unlike Apple, which just got slapped with a class action lawsuit for doing that on purpose to their phones. Really? So do they have like a little timer, a little buzzer within their phone? They kept feeding updates, and one of those updates was an uh, iOS update that caused people to purposely have their phones slowed down to the point that they would go buy new phones. Wow. That's okay. Apple's so much better than everybody else, right? So, you know. So you're not a Steve Jobs I, fan? I, I may I may fucking hate Apple. I'm just so I might be a little biased there. It, it doesn't sound like you fucking hate <laughs> hate Apple. I mean, there wasn't enough like tension and sarcasm in that statement. Give it another shot. I want to hear the sarcasm dripping you oozing. Know, I might just fucking hate Apple. Just a teeny weeny little bit. Okay, the first part of that kind of sounded a little bit like Jack Nicholson's sarcasm, <laughs> and then you went to the uh, the Robin Williams goofy sarcasm there with the teeny teeny little bit portion of that. See, that's that's the that is the level of my loathing. I am actually willing to channel two different forms of extreme sarcasm to make that happen for you. So could you teach a, a class on sarcasm if, if you needed to? I honestly believe that I could. I am, and, and it might be something I need to actually reflect upon in my life. I think that, um, see, there's, there's this theory that I have. No one ever walks away from an encounter with me for the first time saying, you know that Matt, he's all right. They don't ever do that. No. They walk away from an encounter with me the first time either going, holy crap, Matt's fucking awesome, or what the fuck is wrong with this fucking prick? It's really those two things. And I think it's because I am a very cynical, sarcastic bastard. That too. But, um, yeah. Sounds about right. Sure. Well, I mean, at least anyway. at least you you know that, like, which I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse because <laughs> I haven't changed yet. Well, well, <laughs> well, it's probably worse, or I would think it would be worse because people are more afraid of the villains who know that they are psychopaths. You know, like uh, okay, well, let's not let's not go into psychopath. I don't think I'm a psychopath. I just think I'm kind of an asshole, a bit of a dick, pretty cynical, and I guess I just depend on the people who are like me to get it and if you do fantastic well you know you know cynics have a 72 percent chance of becoming a cannibal so it's you're you're heading in the right direction when you consider that roughly 83.6 percent of statistics are made up and something in the neighborhood of 60 percent of statistics don't even matter 85% 85% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> and now that we have devolved our conversation yet again... Well, what classes are you taking this year? I, I meant to ask you that. I, I'm curious to know oh, I'm just if anything can rival the, 
your your no, Middle yeah, Eastern I'm just studies along in yeah, in the uh, required areas to wrap up the English minor that I have, as well as continuing to continuing to focus on the history major. So I am uh, moving forward in the uh, Muslim world. I actually took the same professor I had. Um, oh, good lord! It's not. Ah, the Middle East. There we go. Because it does focus on the Islamic expansion. So I want to say I don't know. It, I, I, it was the Middle East from 500 to 1700 last semester. And I've kept that same professor and I'm moving forward with the Middle East 1700 to present. Uh, which I'm actually really excited about. Because understanding how things were shaped and how the empires actually grew and expanded and changed over time. Spoiler uh, alert, things get a little dicey. No kidding. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, and it's and and it's all uh, the fault of the Habsburgs. I'm just kidding. Not really. Anyway, the Jews. Um, no, the, the Habsburg and, dynasty. Really? Uh, come on. I thought you. I thought you had a history minor. I, I yeah, I, I do. But okay. Well, it's been a little while since I took a history course, and I've met a shitload of Habsburgs out here. Ah, well. You can ask them what their great 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 grandpappies were thinking when they were in the Middle East during. Well, actually, when they were fighting against all of the different dynastic progressions that were happening, like Suleiman the Magnificent, everything that was happening back then, pretty crazy. Now, talk about a cynical prick calling yourself the Magnificent. <laughs> oh. That's not even all he was known by. I can't even remember all the crap that Suleiman. He he had several different names. One of them, one I think, was the Lawgiver. Not, <laughs> not, not like Taker or Make. No, the Lawgiver. He doesn't make laws. He gives them to you. That is, <laughs> I you know, this guy is pretty. I mean, but he was a brilliant tactician. So, I mean, he. I guess he knew what he was doing. So if you so, had to call yourself anything, what would you call yourself? It couldn't be Matt the Great, because that's been probably hmm, The Sot. I think that would probably be good. Matt because, the Sot. Yes. Matthew. Let's go with the, you know, let's extend that a little bit. Matthew the Sot. Um, you know, because I'm a fat bastard, too. There's that. <laughs> now, granted, I'm not, like, rolling <laughs> through the Walmart uh, in, the, in the cart fat or anything like that. But I am a pretty hefty fucking guy. So, so, so you are you are Matthew the mobile sot. Yeah, maybe <laughs> Matthew 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 the sot. Per- parenthetically, though mobile, <laughs> so. agile, still yeah, still capable of doing things like mowing my lawn like I did today. <laughs> so, um, no, but. Uh, uh, let's see. So I'm I'm continuing on with that course, and then I'm doing early British masterworks because I did later British masterworks last semester. And then, uh, honestly, I don't even remember the other two. Another history class that's required, and one more English class that's required. So I don't even remember. I'll show up to class on uh, Wednesday when everything officially kicks off, and then. You should take the class over the history of baking from 
zero to seven hundred and seven hundred to eighteen eighty five and then eighteen eighty five to present it's a three course class uh three semester mm. class and i think i think you'd you'd I get a lot those from first it. two semesters would be pretty fucking boring <laughs> from zero to seven hundred had to be like a lot of yeast build build a fire put some bricks around it or the- <laughs> throw, throw some shit in well, once you get to the yeast in the second class, uh, that's when mm. things really start getting, you know, cooking and stuff. Ooh, cooking. Oh, that was punny. The news? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that now. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> And because we have two extremely meaty movies this week, we are only going to be doing two pieces of news, so this is going to be a very short news segment. First up, from me, uh, from FlickeringMyth.com by way of Gary Collinson, J.J. Abrams addresses criticism that Star Wars The Force Awakens is a ripoff of A New Hope. Notice it's addresses and not denies. I, I, I like that. I definitely like that. All right. So he was speaking to The Hollywood Reporter, and J.J. Abrams stated that, quote, it was obviously a wildly intentional thing that we go backwards in some ways to go forwards in the important ways, given that this genre combines all sorts of things. Ultimately, the structure of Star Wars itself is classic and tried and true as you can get. It was itself derivative of all these things that George loved so much, from the most obvious, Flash, Gordon, and Joseph Campbell, to the Kurosawa uh, references to Westerns. What what was most important for, for me was introducing brand new characters using relationships that were embracing the history that we know to tell a story that is new, to go backwards, to go forwards. We inherited Star Wars. The story of history repeating itself was, I believe, an obvious and intentional thing. And the structure of meeting a character who comes from a nowhere desert and discovers that she has a power within her, where the bad guys have a weapon that is destructive but that ends up being destroyed. Those simple tenets are by far the least important aspects of this movie, and they provide the bones that were well proven long before they were used in Star Wars. End quote. Now... He goes on to discuss where there were, you know, blatant pulls from A New Hope. But again, tries to stress the fact that you're seeing all sorts of new aspects of a new trilogy that he hopes the copy that that will be that he hopes will be taking the foundation from this movie and using it to make newer material going forward. He's hoping that the, you know, quote unquote, or I guess whatever, I'm using air quotes here, the copying will basically cease so that now that we've got the foundation using both A New Hope and these new characters, i.e. Finn and Rey, will now be able to build a new second and third installment. So, I don't know. 
I'm personally, I'm not buying. I'm thinking he pretty much just made a movie that catered to the fans, but also let people who've never experienced Star Wars before kind of start over. And what do you think, Tim? Agree? Disagree? Questions, comments, concerns? Because I, I don't know. I think that um, I think that it it is as we discussed before, like a remix or an episode four point five. And I don't think that it had to be so much so. I think we covered that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm trying to beat the dead horse. Everybody is so excited for Star Wars, and they would have taken and eaten up anything that was not remotely uh, comparable to the prequel movies. And I, I kind of think Disney, in some really weird way, wanted to super make sure that nothing bad, you know, nothing bad would happen or, or something sour would happen. And so they went ahead and, and did the replica, you know, they, they kind of recycled some of the same story and themes and all that stuff from New Hope and Empire. And I think that's, so it's okay to a point, but it's just so damn blatant in that movie, in Force Awakens, that it it's more, it, it's it's just frustrating. And it's kind of difficult, like what, how, what we, how, when we were reviewing it last week. It was difficult for me to say, well, is it a good... I mean, does a movie stand on its own? And it really doesn't, because the movie keeps referencing all these other characters that you really need to have some kind of connection to, to really kind of, you know, to really kind of go with the flow of the movie. Because, like, with the introduction of Han, or the robots, or Chewie, and especially Leia... Their introductions are very kind of like, hey, look at these guys. Remember them? And it wasn't anything that's very, you know, fluid or fitting to a to a film that should have just been standing on its own. So, yeah, I kind of think he might just be backtracking a bit. But also, I kind of think that it might not have been completely his fault. So, I don't know. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right, first up, sad news. Uh, as what everybody probably knows by now, uh, especially since we are recording on Monday, G- uh, January the 11th, and uh, you're not going to be hearing this for a couple days, but uh, David Bowie passed away last night. Uh, I was actually on my way, or walking to a, a bar late last night in L.A., about midnight-ish, and I walked into the bar, and they're playing David Bowie music. And the bar, it's, the bar's been there for years and years and years. My first time there, but it's very kind of classic. Uh, uh, the Hustler, kind of like Paul Newman's The Hustler feel to it. You know, the cool pool table and the old wallpaper. Really, really jive place. And walk in, David Bowie music, get our drinks, sit down, and the music just keeps playing. Everything by David Bowie. Everything. And there are, you know, people are talking amongst themselves and all this stuff. My buddy gets up, goes to the bar, and I'm listening to this conversation that my buddy is having with this guy about David Bowie and talking about how David Bowie uh, passed away or he has cancer or something like that. And no, 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 my buddy came back. And uh, did you hear that lunatic up there? He said David Bowie died. So he whips out his phone and he's you know looking at articles. He 
finds one article and is like, nah, that's got to be a joke. That can't be real. Looks at another one and it finally dawns on the both of us as after we've gone through and looked at you know, maybe about a good 10, 15, you know, probably about 10, 10, 12 articles that David Bowie actually passed away. He succumbed to his cancer that he's been battling for the past 18 months or so. And I don't know about you, Matt, but man, it was very, very sad for me because his music is very influential on uh, in my, well, not necessarily my writing, but it was been very influential on me growing up and with me as agree. well. And yes. so, and I can't tell you about listening to his music as a kid growing up and envisioning movies or envisioning scenes in my head that take place with that music backing it. You know, I did that a lot with David Bowie's music, not only his older stuff, but his newer, uh, uh, semi-newer stuff as well. Cause his newer stuff, uh, his last two albums are great. Uh, Black Star that came out last week is phenomenal. But one great thing about him is that he has managed to con- uh, to reinvent himself throughout the years. But just to give you a little bit more of a background on his passing, I'm going to read from CNN.com. David Bowie, a master of, of music and makeovers, dies at 69. This is written by Saeed Ahmed. Todd Leopold and Joe Sutton. And it says this, David Bowie, whose incomparable sound and chameleon-like ability to, to reinvent himself made him a pop music fixture for more than four decades, has died. He was 69. David Bowie died Sunday, January 10th, after an 18-month battle with cancer, his publicist Steve Martin told CNN. Quote, David Bowie died peacefully today, surrounded by his family, after a courageous 18-month battle with cancer, end quote, said a statement posted on his official social media accounts. Quote, while many of you will share in this loss, we ask that you respect the family's privacy during their time of grief, end quote. Neither his publicist nor the statement elaborated on what type of cancer the singer had. Bowie's death has been the regular subject of internet hoaxes for the last several years, so the news came as a shock to fans and industry insiders when it was confirmed. Quote, Very sorry and sad to say it's true. I'll be offline for a while. Love to all. End quote. His son, Moon Film Director Duncan Jones, retweeted. Duncan Jones' mother, Bowie's first wife, Angela, was sequestered on the UK celebrity Big Brother. Producers posted Monday that she had been informed of his death off-camera and had chosen to stay on the show. Bowie's wife of 24 years, fashion model Iman, had not released a statement as of Monday morning. On Friday, she tweeted several birthday wishes for her husband, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And the article continues to, you know, uh, to mention quotes from various celebrities and friends of his, and, and most of these people, you know for sure who they are. Uh, this is very sad. Yes, his birthday was last Friday, the same day that his latest album and final album, Blackstar, came out. If you haven't listened to it already, give it a listen. If you've listened to it before you found out he passed away, you should give it another listen because he created this album with it in mind that he was going to be dying soon, or he was going to he was going to die soon. The album is about death, and it speaks true to what he must have been uh, feeling at the time. Uh, David Bowie was also an actor as well. We all know him from Labyrinth. One of his 
first movies. He uh, was in Christine F. He was in The Hunger, which is a early vampire movie, a really slow-paced vampire movie that's actually very interesting. It's with Susan Sarandon, uh, directed by Tony Scott that came out in 1983. Merry Christmas, Sister Lawrence is a great prisoner of war movie uh, during World War II uh, based. He was in End of the Night, Absolute Beginners, Labyrinth, The Last Temptation of Christ, where he played Pontius Pilate, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, and he's been in uh, many other things as well, like Zoolander, for example, and The Prestige, which uh, Matt and I have talked about both in the past. R.I.P. David Bowie, he passed away at the age of 69 due to some type of cancer. Very sad. However, did you see the photo that his wife posted on the 8th? Uh, which one? It's the last known photo of David Bowie. And he's in a, he's in a two-piece suit wearing a, wearing a pretty badass hat standing on a street corner. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that sounds familiar. I saw that one. Uh, that was literally taken three days ago. And he does not look like he's about ready to die. It's... I mean, just mind-boggling, you know. <sighs> but it is sad, definitely sad. Yeah. Um, all right, well, shifting to definitely not as sad news, but kind of interesting. From azcentral.com, by way of <laughs> uh, Bang Showbiz. <laughs> that's right, That's that's what it says right here. Domna Gleason not invited to Golden Globes. Now, this is just this kind of just boggles my mind here. Domna Gleason has not been invited to the Golden Globe Awards, even though three of his films are nominated. The 32-year-old act, actor admitted that he will be watching the ceremony at home after missing out on an invite, despite his roles in The Revenant, Ex Machina, and Brooklyn which are all nominated. Domino also saw, stars as villain General Hux in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, <laughs> and basically, this is what he had to say about it. Because um, he was promoting The Revenant with, Cole, with co-star Will Poulter. And this is what he says. When, when they were asked, when Today asked... Uh, if they were going to the Golden Globes. Domhnall quips, quote, The deathly silence suggests that maybe we haven't been invited. Thank you for bringing it up. We're not going to be at the Golden Globes. We're going to watch it at home. End quote. Now, my thing is, if you are literally, basically one-third of the cast of a movie and playing very prominent, if not the most key roles, but prominent roles in two other films that have been heavily nominated and are destined for, like, Oscar, you know, Oscar noms and all this stuff. You think maybe you could get a little spot at the table? Maybe? Just even in the back corner, anywhere. You don't even necessarily have to have any close-ups. Just, just to be there? I thought that was kind of shitty. Like, seriously shitty that he didn't get anything. Forget Star Wars. 
<laughs> Seriously? Uh, what do you got to say about that, Tim? Well, yeah. I mean, if Lady Gaga can win a Golden Globe, I'm pretty sure he deserves something. <laughs> I'm just saying, to get to go, fuck being nominated for anything. But can you at least, you know, give the man a seat at the table <laughs> where all the Revenant people are? Or just let him go to the building or something? I... Did you watch the Golden Globes at all? No. You didn't miss no. anything. Uh, I watched, uh, today I watched DiCaprio's acceptance speech and uh, Gervais's opening jokes, which were pretty funny, I thought. All right, so I guess I will wrap up the news by talking about some camera equipment. Uh, and pardon the sound if you're hearing, if my, if my audio sounds a little bit distorted or funky, somebody decided to take a shower right above me and the pipes are right behind me and it's a little loud. For, from nofilmschool.com, here comes an interesting little camera. The first film to shoot on Red's 8K VistaVision camera is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Red has just confirmed that the first major feature film shooting on their new 8K camera is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yes, that was 8K, not 4K. But double the 4K gives you 8K. Uh, red camera, uh, the Hobbit shot with red, uh, and pretty much the high, the, uh, one of the best high-end cameras you can get are the red brand cameras. While the flagship 8K Weapon Vista Vision full-frame 35mm camera is a lot more than most of us need right now, major Hollywood features can always find a way to take advantage of more resolution and higher frame rates. This camera is slowly starting to trickle out to red users who have pre-ordered it. But as always, with the newest tech, high-profile shows often get first crack at it. The 8K Dragon sensor shares similar image characteristics like pixel size, color, and dynamic range as the 6K Dragon sensor, but is much larger. The 8K Weapon camera can shoot at a variety of resolutions including 6K, 5K, 4K, and etc. Uh, of course, 8K at 8192 by 4320 and so on. Red's press release says as follow or is as follows, quote, We are all hugely excited to be shooting the next Guardians of the Galaxy on the new Weapon 8K. This is my third collaboration with Red, having previously shot with the Red Epic on Prometheus and Epic Dragon on Tarzan, says Nick Corda, executive producer. The large sensor size and super high resolution offered by the new Weapon 8K, combined with its lightweight and compact size, open up a whole range of new creative possibilities. Weapon 8K captures 8K at 75 frames per second, 6K at 100 frames per second, or 4K at 150 frames per second with Red Code Raw, uh, and so on from there. It's a really cool camera. Uh, check it out. If you're into cameras, uh, check out this article. It's from nofilmschool.com. Uh, again, it was uh, that the first film to shoot on Red's 8K VistaVision camera is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Uh, it'll be fun to see when the, uh, to see this movie come when it comes out or see the trailers and the first images of what the 8K uh, weapon produces because I think it'll just be absolutely beautiful. 
Because it's not necessarily with high-definition televisions. You don't want colors to really pop out. A lot of it are the, the blacks, the darkness. Because whenever you shoot something at night, you really need the dark... The, the evening nighttime to really contrast well with the uh, with with the subject that you are shooting and you can really achieve this with little lighting as the resolution gets higher and higher and higher so this is very exciting uh, the second technical thing is something more fun here Kubrick's via dppreview.com Kubrick's f uh, f stop 0.7 lenses now available for rent but start saving up uh, this was actually something that was published a few years ago, like on uh, 2013, via the DP Review staff. And I just thought it's interesting. Legendary filmmaker Stanley Kubrick pushed the boundaries of movie making in many ways and was responsible for some of the most enduring visuals in cinema. When he made Barry Lyndon in 1975, Kubrick shot with two ultra-rare Carl Zeiss Primes, which had originally been created for NASA for use on the Apollo space program and were modified for Kubrick to use with a Mitchell BNC camera. Using the 50mm and 35mm F-0.7 lenses, Kubrick was able to film some scenes purely by candlelight. Now, Germany-based company P&S, or P plus S, Technic has announced that they've modified a PS Cam X35 HD to be able to accept Kubrick's Primes, and the whole package is available to rent. Exactly how much it will cost is still unclear. PS Technic's brochure simply says on request, but the camera alone cost costs 750 euros per day, so we doubt it will be within the means of most casual videographers. And all quotes there. This is really cool for any of you guys out there that have seen Barry Lyndon. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Every shot in the movie is absolutely beautiful. Kind of like uh, the Mr. Turner film where every shot is like a beautiful picture. Same with this one and how he utilizes candlelight for the lighting is fantastic. The contrast of the shadows with the colors, uh, with those that are lit, the subjects that are lit, is beautiful and very subtle. It's it's an absolutely gorgeous film, based on uh, the cinematography alone. Matt, are you have you seen Barry Lyndon before? Do you know what I'm talking about? And have you heard about these lenses and his technique of shooting this film? Nope, nope, and nope. Awesome. News done. Okay, uh, then we will move right into Did It Age Well? Oh my. And the answer is no. 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 Okay. Yeah, this this week's movie is, or this week's edition of Did It Age Well. Don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your gin and juice in the hood and this movie literally just turned 20 technically it doesn't turn 20 until tomorrow 
But by the time you hear it, it'll be 20 years old. So, ha, ha, ha. Um, and this is basically a... It's a parody movie for black coming-of-age hood films like Juice and Jungle Fever, Friday, Boys in the Hood, all that kind of stuff. These were movies that were good <laughs> and popular at the same time, which is why there were so many, because they were good as well as popular. And then they come along and make this movie, which I think I, I think did a good job of spoofing those films, and because I was what in the neighborhood of 19 years old or so when this movie came out it was you know typical teenage junk humor that i i definitely laughed at but this is a wayans brothers film it was uh, actually produced by keenan ivory wayans and then written by sean and marlon wayans along with phil bowman and then stars sean and marlon wayans along with like vivica fox and chris spencer uh, and along with people who actually were in some of the previously mentioned movies who have cameo roles that kind of spoof their movie roles. But we're following Ashtray and Lope Dog. That's right, Ashtray. Trey for short, though. Um, played by Sean Wayans and Marlon Wayans, respectively. And how they come together. Wait, was it, in is the it hood. Lock Dog or is it Lope Dog? I thought it was Loke Dog. Maybe so. I don't remember. I don't remember either. It was... <laughs> it's so important. I'm thinking it was Loke Dog because of Tone Loke back in the day with Loke being spelled. Right? Man, I just watched this the other day, too. Ah, oh, fuck it. Whatever. Um, <laughs> if it's wrong, feel free to correct us because we're not going to be coming back to this anytime soon. Um... Anyways, and their misadventures dealing with the man and trying to overcome all the issues that face young black men in the hood in a comedy spoof movie in the late 90s or in the mid 90s. So the thing is, is that what this stuff might have been funny spoofing back then is not really the same thing as what made the original movies that were being spoofed good. So there's just no way this thing can age well. The jokes are stale. They're definitely designed for teenagers. And that's pretty much it. And teenagers of today won't understand what's being spoofed, so they're not going to find it funny either. In short, this movie did not age well. I can't really, yeah, it's just dumb. Don't watch it. You know, now, if you feel like watching movies like Friday or Jungle Fever or, you know, New Jack City or something like that, Menace to Society, watch those. I think those have a better shot of having aged well. Just don't watch this. Go ahead, sir. What, do you, what is your opinion? I think, I think you already stated it, but just for the record. Yeah, no, it, I mean, really, it, it didn't age well, but there are some really funny bits to it, like... It, like very very small little like nuance bits, kind of like what like what made Naked Gun the Naked Gun trilogy of movies trilogy I guess so great. Just like the little bitty things, like you like cereal boxes that you know, like the type of cereal that they eat. Like one's called Wheaties, <laughs> and on top of that, you have people's names as well, like you know like Ashtray and Loke Dog and. Dashiki, or yeah, Dashiki, Preach, Crazy Legs, and Do Rag. 
just stuff like that. It, it's I mean it's it's really funny and because it's nothing like that's too provocative, but sometimes the simplest jokes are the more well thought out jokes. You know, it's like people that say uh, fuck all the time. You know, if you say fuck all the time, you just sound like an idiot. But if you use other colorful language instead of that, you might sound more like a more more of like more of like a, a sophisticated moron. Who knows? Uh, but when it comes down to it, this movie just simply does not age well. It has some funny moments, like the whole supermarket scene that I know is Matt's favorite scene when they walk in. It is and... still very funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and, and the movie is just shot well. Uh, this, I mean, the cinematography, I guess. You know, yes, I'm going to mention cinematography for this. It's just shot well. You know, the uh, the scenes, the setups, it looks very much... Like how uh, how how the movies that it is spoofing would you know looks like how they all look like you know the really kind of uh, super independent feel to it the really kind of down home look to it as in uh, as in more and more of like an indie film today kind of feel to it and yeah it's just I think it's just trying too hard with material that just doesn't hold up now but. Yeah, I mean it's it's the Wayne's brothers, you know. It'll be interesting watching a scary movie when that hits 20. Which it's not going to be that much more uh that much longer actually. Came out in 99, 2000, I think. Well, there you go. A very resounding no. It did not age well for Don't Be a Menace to South Central while drinking your gin and juice in the hood. Is it gin and juice, or is it just juice? I'm sorry, just juice. Yeah, my bad. Not gin and juice. While drinking your juice in the hood. Anyway. Were you trying to make it more racist? Yeah. I was just... I don't know. It just keeps getting longer and longer. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, with that being said, next week we're going to go back and do our regular three squared as a bonus segment. Uh, Next week's three squared will actually be... Uh, our favorite performances by David Bowie in the movies and and as a tribute to David Bowie. And without further ado, here we go, folks. It's the movies. All right, so... This week's movies are The Revenant, The Hateful Eight, and Concussion. Where do you want to start, sir? I'm 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 assuming Concussion, but you might surprise me. Concussion. Yes, Concussion. All right, Concussion. Um, <laughs> so this is basically the latest in a string of from the files of real life movies about how a guy takes on a massive corporate one lone man uh or in the case of like Aaron Brockovich a woman uh takes on the evil corporate entity in order to show the truth of the damage being done to real people and the thing is is that while the movie is very decently acted um 
it just doesn't bring anything new to the table. This is the a retelling of the story of um, Dr. Bennett Omalu, who basically discovers a correlation between <clears throat> um, trauma to the brain, chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy, I think I said that right, or CTE for short, which is basically when football players keep getting hit in the head over time, it affects their ability to um, function later on in life, leading to PTSD-like symptoms, uh, suicide, uh, un, you know, unrelatable, just violent episodes and things like that. And then, of course, how the NFL fought it because, you know, they didn't want, you know, much like in The Insider, right, that I referenced a few weeks ago with Russell Crowe and everything, uh, how the tobacco companies knew but didn't want anybody else to know. Or like just mentioned in the aforementioned, I just mentioned in the aforementioned, God, what the hell? Grammar is just not my friend tonight. In the aforementioned Aaron Brockovich, where, you know, taking on the bad water. Um, it's just been done before. And it's not that it's a bad movie, really. It's just it doesn't bring anything new to the table. If anything, it it just reinforces the fact that a corporation or a company is simply an entity. Whether or not you want to ascribe humanity to it is not for this discussion, as far as I'm concerned. And that's not what I'm trying to say. But the people who run the companies always just generally seem to be really shitty people. It's almost as if the people here, like from the NFL, recently moved over to Comcast or something. I don't know. Um, it just doesn't bring anything new to the table. It's a inter kind of interesting story if you didn't already know about it. Um, it's decently acted, and that's really about it. I give this one two and a half stars. It's it's just an okay movie for me. I enjoyed this movie more. Uh, I thought it was a well-acted and slickly produced film that's overall entertaining. I mean, it, the movie is a little over two hours, and I didn't get bored once. Once uh, once things start, uh, started moving along, I just thoroughly enjoyed the movie, or, or just uh, enjoyed... Enjoyed watching the story unfold and play out. Uh, Will Smith's performance is really good. Albert uh, Brooks's performance is really good. A couple things off the top of my head that was starting that kind of I mean that turned me off from the movie a bit was some of the makeup where I know what Albert Brooks looks like. Uh, if I could draw, I could draw him based off memory and. <laughs> it took me a little while to get used to his 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 forehead, as well as the guy who plays. Uh, oh man, I, can't, I forget his name, but he's been in so much stuff. He's one of those guys, one of those actors. He's the one that plays the football player, the the initial football player who uh, who has that that brain issue that kind of gets everything, gets the story you know set in motion pretty much. Uh, his makeup as well was a little bit distracting. So just little tiny things like that, as well as these these moments. You know, it has a lot of these these 
hallmark moments where these instances are just perfectly placed throughout the story and it's just it, like like a little like a little it has a little bow with a little ribbon on it and it just works out perfectly it's like you're watching a show on hallmark not as cheesy as lifetime but hallmark cheesy which is kind of a rung down or up i'm saying down as if that's a positive thing it's a it's a it's a rung in the right direction there we go um but overall, I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. I think that the movie didn't need to be fast-paced and and ex- super exciting. I know that's what a lot of critics are saying about it. A lot of negative... Uh, yeah, that's what a lot of critics are saying about it. Where they just really wanted more stuff to happen. Where it really needed more bite to it. Which I agree for the most part. The movie definitely could have used more bite. But for how it was, what it was, which is... You know, like, you can watch this with a mature child, you know, and everybody could get something out of this movie. Good acting, and it's a good story. Um, yeah, and I, you know, right off the bat, I'm not a big football fan, uh, and I really don't know if that really had any pull within me, you know, as in, like, how necessarily I really feel about people's motivations or whatnot, but I just really don't understand how the whole point... There's like two or three instances in the movie where somebody's talking about the art form, the art of football. And right after you're watching this movie, talking about, you know, that, that's, 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 that's kind of pretty much just saying that, like, you know, if you're playing football and you're hitting your head a lot, prepare, you're going you're gonna to die a horrible death by your own hand once you go crazy. You know, they, they go through all this, like, very sad and depressing talk about the effects of hitting your head and stuff. That then they go on and, and do these speeches and these, like, little scenes about how how much, how beautiful and graceful ballet, or, uh, and graceful football is. It's like you're watching a beautiful ballet. It's all strategic. And they're talking about that. And just in the back of my head, it's like, yeah, but... It's not healthy according to this movie standards and according to what you guys are. It was just really kind of funky. And I think that's one story element that they could have played around a little bit more. I wanted to see that. I wanted to see a little bit more of, yeah, you know what? You know, football, it might not be the healthiest sport, but you know what? I love this game and I will sacrifice anything, whether it be my health, uh, my life, for the love of this game. I wanted to see more of that type of uh, reasoning, you know, within a character, even. Uh, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I, I mean, I give this movie uh, three and a half out of five. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it for what it was. Well, there you go, then. Um, all right, so that's Concussion. Where do you want to go there? From Where do you want to go from there, sir? Well, I was going to save my favorite for last, but I don't necessarily know if it was your favorite or not. So, <laughs> so I was going to say The Hateful Eight next. Okay, well then let's do 
The Hateful Eight. 2015 American Western mystery film uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and of course as we all probably already know stars Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, Demikon Bashir, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, and Bruce Dern as eight strangers who seek refuge from a blizzard in a stagecoach, stagecoach stopover sometime after the American Civil War. Um... All right, so this is a what's interesting about this movie, really, despite it being described as a as a western mystery or or just an overall western, is that this film is really at its heart it's a one room drama, and it's something that really Quentin Tarantino has never tried before. I know Tim and I were definitely texting back and forth about this yesterday or the day before, but um. And the thing is, is that the closest thing that he's ever really done to a one-room drama, and it really wasn't, would be Reservoir Dogs. And even that aspect of its one-room-esque drama was really broken up, especially with flashbacks and that kind of thing. But on the but on the whole, that was definitely more action thriller, whereas Hateful Eight is definitely... Uh, a drama. Now it's got it's got all the Tarantino wit, and it's got uh, uh, it definitely has some explosive action as you get to the end of it. But still, at the core, it is a one room drama that focuses heavily on the idea of people trying to figure out what it is, or uh, people, the audience, I guess, left trying to figure out what is exactly happening at the core of this this woman being brought in because basically it's Kurt Russell is playing uh, a character by the name of John Ruth also known as the hangman and he is a bounty hunter who always brings in his charges alive so that they can be hung and he is bringing in Daisy Domergue, a.k.a. you know the prisoner, right? And she is part of a gang, and she's worth $10,000. And, of course, because she's part of a gang, Kurt Russell suspects everyone, everyone, no one can be trusted, of trying to free her. And so that's kind of what the idea is, is what's going on at the center of Kurt Russell and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's characters in regards to him trying to bring her in to be hung. Now, for myself, I saw this movie in the full 70mm Roadshow version. And I the, the entire experience for me, I think, is what really boosts this rating. Because it's it's just so incredibly different to actually watch it as the overture kind of sets the mood and to actually watch the screen like i actually noticed and it's something that you don't really see anymore like the the whites in this film uh in my particular showing were slightly uh oversaturated so that you could actually in the in the hard white snow 
of the early scenes that they do to establish things, uh, it was actually, you could see a little flicker, which of course is the actual projector. And it's something that I hadn't remembered. I, I literally had forgotten that that could happen and stuff. And yet it still added to that experience for me. Um, being able to watch that movie. And then of course I have me and my dad, we went and saw it. Um, you get your little, you get these cool little brochures that you're able to look through before the movie started and all this kind of stuff. And then you get to the intermission and to actually be able to talk about what was going on while you're still in the theater waiting for the second act to begin was also something that, again, and now my dad is, 60 years uh, is 60 years old and so he grew up in the era of this kind of stuff he actually went to the theater and saw how the west was won in the 180 degree um theater style and everything in the in the whole in the dome thing and everything he he and so that was kind of reminiscent for him to be able to come and sit down for these uh for this particular presentation and so Having all of these things incorporated into your movie-going experience, I got to say, was really amazing. That being said, you can see throughout the movie where he's borrowing heavily from the things that he's done before. For example, the chapters. He breaks down the chapter one, the chapter two, and, and so on and so forth, which are very reminiscent of the Kill Bill movies. He has a... As well as Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yes, of course. Thank you, Inglorious Bastards. And he also has the establishing, the, the quiet establishing shots that go into setting up, which are very, very very reliant on cinematography and then quiet indoor conversation much like again glorious bastards and then he's got all of the standard quentin tarantino quippiness but that again was key from reservoir dogs and also pulp fiction with a splash of jackie brown in there too and and the way that the characters are so disparate, but still all connected, especially as you come to the core of the story. And then you get to the end, and minor spoiler alert, when Channing Tatum finally comes to the fore in this film, from then on, I just felt like, I honestly felt a la Kill Bill Volume 1, he, that Tarantino was trying a little too hard with the violence. And I don't mean that to be derogatory, just that I think, I think he was just trying to give his fans what he knew they would expect. But he had done such a good job up to that point of limiting the violence, except for the poison scene, that I don't think it was really necessary to have to have gone through all of that. And then again, we, and then by the actual final closing shots, where we have very reminiscent uh, aspects of the closing, final closing shots of Reservoir Dogs. So while I certainly thought that the movie was good, 
And I thoroughly enjoyed it. You could see that he was heavily reliant on previous films. And I think to a certain extent, he was trying too hard. Um, everybody gives good performances in this film. Uh, high, high marks for cinematography. And, and the experience. And I got to say, it's the, the experience is the experience is key. So I, I would probably say if I had not had the experience that I had when I went and saw this movie, I would probably be in the 4.25 range on this. But the experience wins it over, and I'm going a 4.75. It's not a perfect movie, and I can't give it a 5. Um, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. And yes, I'll probably get it. I'm not. Who the fuck am I kidding? I'm going to get it on Blu-ray, obviously, when it comes out. But... It was it was going to the theater and seeing it in seventy millimeter that brought it up as high as it did. So there you go. What do you got there, Tim? I did not like this movie as much as Matt. I do appreciate what Tarantino was was wanting to do with uh, with the roadshow version, bringing back like the intermission and the overture and all that stuff, and kind of the big sweeping. Uh, I mean, the, the score is not uh, big and sweeping whatsoever. Uh, but it definitely sets the tone for the film, and it does so quite nicely. I, I, I like uh, Morricone's score uh, very much. In fact, it did win the Golden Globe for Best Score, which actually kind of surprised me a little bit, because the score is very much kind of the same thing throughout, but it's highly effective for the movie itself. I really liked Tarantino... Uh, Doing the programs as well, I thought that was really cool. The not the playbills, but yeah, their their programs, uh, beautiful programs too, and they're definitely collectible. It's something that will be neat to have, you know, twenty five, thirty five years from now, going back and looking at it because it's chock full of pictures and little tidbits of the production as well. Uh, so I think, I mean, I mean that alone is worth, I think, going to see in seventy millimeter on top of the experience of. The beautiful cinematography and whatnot. However, I ended up seeing this at Tarantino's theater. Uh, I saw it on 35mm, his personal copy of the film, actually. And we still got the Roadshow uh, playbills, uh, the booklets, because it was still the Roadshow version. Originally, my plan was to see it, the first time seeing it, at the Cinerama Dome, which is what the movie was made for. But it turns out Star Wars is still taking up every fucking large format theater around L.A. And it's fucking annoying. So I'm going to actually have to go back and rewatch Hateful Eight again in Cinerama to get the ultra Panavision effect that it was shot in. Uh, but again, I did see the Roadshow version, but I saw it on a, on a smaller screen at uh, Tarantino's Theater. So I really liked what Tarantino was reaching for with all this uh, grandiose throwback, nostalgia, movie-making-ness that he was doing. But I just couldn't help but to feel like he's reveling in the homage of the classic movie format without really letting himself, as a filmmaker, loose. It kind of felt like that with Django, he hit a point, and he just kind of continued along the same path. 
with this movie. Now, for those of you who might remember, I didn't really like Django a whole lot. I still gave it a favorable rating, uh, but I just really didn't like some of the choices that he took as a filmmaker. Again, stellar performances like all of his movies. This movie, I his choices really didn't bother me until the end. Because during the first half of the movie, it feels like... You know, it has that classic feel to it. You know, like I, what I mentioned beforehand, he's reveling in the the, the homage, uh, uh, in, in the in, in his homages that he's paying to the classic movie format. But again, it's not really himself that's letting loose. It just kind of feels like something that we've already seen. But during during the first half, I still have a smile on my face. I'm getting into it. Yeah, the char- so a couple of the characters I you know I didn't really care for too much, or some of the line delivery or uh, choices in comedic timing or whatnot. But I was still smiling because I was enjoying myself and having a good time. But the second act, the second act is where it definitely falls more apart for me. Uh, definitely on the downhill slope of the of the first act into the second act, uh, right before the intermission. That's when things really start to seem familiar. That's when he's breaking out of the homage shell and he's just going right into the, uh, I mean, I don't want to say in-your-face violence because, I mean, there's a lot of violence in it, but it's nothing like too ungodly awful. You know, it's not anything that you haven't seen. But I, it, I, I kind of think he has like a penis fetish and like, penises getting cut off fetish i don't know because he's really i mean like he there's a lot of that type of stuff in some of his movies and i just it it, i mean just that alone is kind of feeling a little bit stale it's like he kind of does that just to shock you not necessarily to i'm not saying he has to necessarily you know aim for entertainment but it's not really anything integral to the storyline just like oh man i that would be funny if this character had this happen to him and that's kind of it. I mean, it just really doesn't make all that too much sense, uh, other than maybe the the funny lines that are that are that are, that are produced from that instance. Um, so, like I said, the uh, aspects of the second half of the film are contradictory to the first half. Uh, let's see, it's the last thing I wrote here. The last half, I thought it was just trying too hard. And it gets very preachy with its violence and the characters breaking loose. And where you have these very classic, and in a way you can kind of buy that they were they are characters from that time period. Then you get into the second half when more characters are introduced. And it, they feel more like caricatures than really anything else. Like the, the, the mini character and her and the in the other people that run the haberdashery and then you meet some other folks that just really don't feel as authentic to the first half uh, as how the first half of the movie felt to me um but i'm looking forward to seeing it again to see if my opinion changes at all but until then i am giving i'm sitting at a 3.5 out of 5 for the hateful eight well all righty then Definitely, you definitely did not enjoy it as much. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it. It's you know, I I think I, I was told by somebody 
the friend of mine who lives out here, he's seen it two or three times in the theaters, and he was like, just go and see it a second time, and you'll be able to see people's like reactions and stuff in the background and it'll make more sense because you already know what's going to happen and they're saying like pay attention to tim roth tim roth is amazing when you know what you know what's going to happen so for that aspect alone i'm looking forward to seeing it especially awesome all right well then i guess that leaves us with the revenant uh national geographic presents (laughs) the revenant National Geographic presents Bear Rape. Um, All right. This is a... It's classified as like a biographical Western, but it's really just kind of a loosely based... um, it's, it's It's a drama thriller that is loosely based on Hugh Glass, who was... Uh, purported to have survived a bear attack in the late 1800s. Actually, well, I guess early to mid 1800s. This is the film itself is in part based on a book, but again, really only to draw from this book's narrative of what happened to Hugh Glass. It uses the names of the people who really did live. But that's, and then of course, you know, the survivalist aspect of the film uh, from real life. But outside of that, it's, it's, it's its own movie. That's not to say it's not a good movie. But just remember when, that you're watching a movie, you know, with the air quotes here, inspired by true events. Because it's not how it went down in real life. But we're following the exploits of some hunting uh, hunters and trappers trying to get some, trying to gather pelts in 1823, and this is in the area of Montana and South Dakota. The trappers are trying to wrap up a pretty successful haul when they are set upon by uh, American natives or. Uh, what 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 was the term that uh, Leonardo uh, DiCaprio used in his uh, indigenous people, and they are and I believe it's Pawnee that they are that that attacked them or the Cree. It was I think they're saying that it was Cree Indians. Leo's character he was part of the Pawnee. That's right. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, he he had had a Pawnee wife and child, and then. Uh, so it was the Cree that were attacking them. Now, um, they then, of course, have to escape. Um, they're barely making it out. The, this, you know, started with like thirty-seven guys, and they're down to basically like nine. Through the course of getting away, we have uh, a guy by the name of John Fitzgerald who is played. Ex- excellently by Tom Hardy, who is basically only in only in this whole thing for himself. He could give a flying fuck about anything other than making the money he was supposed to make and getting the fuck out so that he can make the money he was supposed to make. Anything else is an unacceptable setback for him. And he uses this to kind of press his advantage... 
um, and and basically insert himself as the de facto leader, despite people like oh I don't know Domna Gleason, who's actually supposed to be the dude in charge, <laughs> um, telling him otherwise, and also needing DiCaprio, who plays Hugh Glass, as their tracker. And through the course of this, they have to basically get down to where they can just have a, what little furs they can carry with them, hide the rest of the cash, and then they're trying to make it. They're trying to make for the fort. The bear attack happens, and the, it comes down to they're wanting to take glass with them, but of course he's you know severely injured, and. Uh, Fitzgerald is like, we need to leave this motherfucker. He's dying. You know, it's not, it's not worth it. So they then decide to uh, get three people to stay behind for a cash bounty. One of them is uh, Glass's son. The other is just a young kid. And both of these guys offer to give up their share to keep, uh, to, to get one more person to stay with them. And when they've offered up that share, their shares, Fitzgerald is like, oh, well, okay, now I'll do it. Because now he's got a guaranteed payday. So it's worth it for him to watch and sit around until Glass is supposed to die a couple of days later. Well, leave it to Fitzgerald to just not wait to let nature take its course. And before too long, Glass is left for dead. Glass's son is killed by Fitzgerald. And... Thus, the movie really gets going. Now, this is... Okay, I remember reporting early, uh, a few weeks ago. Actually, gosh, probably about five weeks ago now, given the given the holidays. That... Um, Emmanuel uh, Lubezki was a lock for the cinematography win for the Oscar... I'm I'm standing by that. I think that uh, there's just no way he can he can lose um, at this point. But Jesus Christ, did DiCaprio pull some shit off? You literally, I I, I have not been so tense in a movie since I can remember. I was finding it hard to relax at any virtually at any point throughout this film and you have to watch DiCaprio because there's so little dialogue really given the length of this movie the the length of it's 156 minutes and you've probably got a grand total of 20 minutes worth of dialogue in the film virtually everything else is just trying is watching men primarily DiCaprio as glass but men plural survive in this harsh environment uh and it's not an it's not an easy it's not an easy task and yet to see this guy suffering as he suffered and yet understand intrinsically what needs to occur in order to survive and find the intestinal fortitude as it were to do so is amazing and yet also to see the flip side of that in Hardy's portrayal of Fitzgerald as someone who is literally just as tough 
but only in it for himself and to see how he's willing to go how far he's willing to go to make things happen just for himself is also really neat and it's the the crazy thing is that it creates a really cool dynamic that is like interplay but they don't really see each other and yet the ideas themselves are what are at play and they're so so beautifully constructed and you see the cinematography and how they chose their shots and how they chose certain setups so that you can even though certain themes are repeated for example like the sun through the trees you can still see why they chose these shots because the sun is at different points in the sky even though it's still centered through the trees to give you a really cool idea of whether or not this is something more uplifting for this particular part of the movie to convey certain aspects of time that are passing distance terrain all of these kinds of things are done but the shot itself seems to be like it, without looking at it more closely would almost be the same shot and so it's things like this throughout the whole movie. And then, of course, the performances and the story that's being told is just ridiculously amazing. And just before you think that the that the second act is going on too far, they finally switch it into gear into the third act. And you're just like, oh, my God, now all this stuff is happening, too. And despite all of the things that are so gruesome... Uh, because there is a lot of violence, not just I know the bear gets the most attention, but that is that is by far and away the least of what you're going to experience in terms of violence in this film and brutality and not necessarily uh, for glorification or anything, just the sheer realistic aspect of the brutality is, I think, the unsung hero of the film. And that's the fucking sound. Oh, my God. God, the sound. The whole, I mean, if this thing doesn't win for sound mixing or sound editing, I'm going to be pissed. It should get both, but I'll settle for one or the other. If it does, but this thing, every single thing that you hear in the movie has its place. And it's almost as if it, it's almost as if they intentionally wrote a, for lack of a better term, because they don't have one of these, like a sound script, not notes, not this is what the editing needs to feel like, this is where the mixing... It's almost as if every single beat of the film got its own special treatment. And one of the, like, um, because it's an easy one and it doesn't provide any spoilers, the bear attack. You actually can hear the breathing of DiCaprio as glass interspersed with the breathing of the bear and they are sometimes they're in sync with each other and sometimes they literally play off of each other and you got and it's almost like this march it's almost it's like this little rhythm that happens and they blend and it's like you can hear it and then you realize what's happening and then you see that glass is figuring out what's happening and yet that little rhythm still goes back and forth and sometimes marches together. And then in key with the cinematography, as everything is moving around and you see that 
glasses looking for the bear. He he knows what's fucking going on. He just can't find it. And then the cubs come into come into play and it's like the breathing stops. And then the breathing starts again and then you get the attack. And the whole fucking movie's like that. You just get these amazing experiences because there's such a lack of dialogue that it becomes so important and yet it's not ever overplayed. And that, I think, is going to be even more than the amazing performances by DiCaprio and Hardy. Because, well, I think I, I, I feel that DiCaprio may finally get his due. Let's not underscore Hardy here. Hardy did a fucking phenomenal job as well. And I think Inaritu really pulled some shit out of his ass to make this thing happen. I thought it was I definitely thought he did a great job. Um But for me, holy crap, the sound. The sound is the thing that sticks with me the most beyond anything else. And I give this movie five stars. <laughs> What? Was Stop. I right? <laughs> wow. Didn't take very long to get a five-star rating this year. No, not at all. And that was pretty much my review for the most part. <laughs> I wrote a lot about the sound also. I saw that I did the uh, AMC XD Prime thing or whatever. So you have like the the speakers are literally all around the theater. It's kind of insane. And just where you're sitting... You can crisp, I mean, maybe, I'm sure it was probably the same thing uh, as what it sounds, I guess. It's the same thing with you. Like, whenever you, whenever, like, uh, uh, snow is melting and it's, like, tapping and dripping and tapping, making that tap noise on a leaf, you can just hear that so crisply and perfectly. You can hear the ice melt. You can hear the little driplet of water drip down. You hear all of it and you hear it drip on the 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 leaf it's it's outstanding it's beautiful the sound in the movie is perfect and you have to see this at the movie theater to get the full uh to get the full experience very much like seeing the roadshow version of the hateful eight you need to see it in a nice big theater that's showing 70 millimeter to get the full experience definitely the same thing with the revenant as well now I mean, I mean, so all the all the good things that Matt said about the movie, especially technically, it's beautiful. Uh, however, I mean, I do think uh, Dean Simler is going to win the Academy Award. Matt, he was the he won the Academy Award for Dances with Wolves, and earlier this year he was a cinematographer for Paul Blart Mall Cop Two, and it was outstanding. So I kind of think he will win for best cinematography for Paul Blart. Mall oh my god, I'm so sorry. I, f- I forgot how the mighty have fallen. I mean, <laughs> how good Paul Blart was. No, cin- was. cinematography for The Revenant is outstanding. They shot... I I'm, I'm feel confident in saying most of the film was shot in natural light. Like, everything you are seeing, for the most part, is, you know, is exactly where they shot the scene. Whenever you see all the beautiful shots of the of the... Or when you see all the beautiful shots of the sun setting or the sun rising, that they were doing that. They were doing all of that. And it's just incredible. It's amazing. And it was grueling for the actors especially. But it was just amazing that they were able to achieve it. And it 
in, in the end product being as successful as it was or as it turned out to be. But some of the negative things about the movie, uh, and yeah, there is some, but it doesn't take too much away from the film. Uh, just basically, I just wanted more, more, more of the emotional aspect to come into play with the film. I thought that the coordinated violence that uh, loses kind of the desired effect after a while, uh, like some of the the single shot takes, you know, you can see where they're cutting in between. Uh, in between those single shot takes, like whenever the camera just kind of zooms in on somebody's back or goes in the water, well, you know, that's cut, and then the next take's going to pick up right after that. There's a lot of that throughout the movie, and it happens kind of frequently, so it, I think it just kind of loses its desired effect. Then again, I know what I'm looking for, and I'm sure if the casual moviegoer have they, you know, you probably have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, but. I just kind of think that loses its effect after a little while. It becomes too showy than it being a piece of art or, or a tool to make art. Uh, let's see, beautiful cinematography. Uh, I thought the emotional aspect wasn't as poignant as it thinks that it was uh, or, or it, that it thinks that it does have, I should say. Uh, the focus was more on the events and the situations that unfold throughout the film. And the movie, a good thing about the movie is that it moves awfully quick, you know? So it's not one of those kind of artsy-fartsy, tearjerker type of movies. You know, like, it moves pretty quick. But on top of that, I think the movie would have worked better on the on an emotional level if they did incorporate some of those more characterization moments throughout the film and that does happen like when people when people die uh and when uh Leonardo DiCaprio has to deal with that said death I guess they do have those moments but I kind of think that what overshadows it are these are, are are these big grandiose events that take place like the CGI bear which I mean, it's a good-looking bear, but it's CGI, and there's there is still CGI throughout the movie. Uh, you have a lot of uh, there's I mean, there's not a ton of violence, but when there is violence, it is definitely bloody and pretty gory. And so you have all that stuff, and I think when you when you have all that stuff, it kind of overshadows the poignant characterization that the, uh, that the film really needed, you know, kind of takes you out of it a little bit. So maybe it's just too far, uh, too far few in between, or or maybe it just wasn't explored as well as maybe it should have been. Or it, it's probably just me. And I, according to Matt's review, it is just me, maybe. Uh, but yeah, no, I, on the whole, I just, I thought it was a good movie. I mean, at, for what it is, it's it's a fantastic film. It's, a, it's an achievement, especially. Uh, however, I sit at point. Two five out of five for the revenant. Looking, I'm looking forward to seeing this one again. So this very well could be one of those movies where the second time around it hits all the right buttons. All right. Well, there you go. The Heathen put it at four point two five, but we'll forgive him. He'll come back around, much like I eventually changed my mind about Superman Returns. Maybe in several years he'll be like, ah. Oh, what a five-star movie. And I'll go, yes! Yes! From 4.25 to 5, it only took, 
you know, 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, the movies for next week are going to be The Big Short, Brooklyn, and Trumbo. All theater flicks again. As you can see, we're getting... We're trying to gear up and preempt Oscar season so we don't have to watch 256 movies in four weeks <clears throat> like we normally end up doing. But um, we'll see how that goes. And I think without further ado, it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. Coincidentally, no emails this week, so please send us some emails. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Also, don't forget that you can even subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Albert Brooks, I get to say this... What's interesting about books that take place in the future, even 20 years in the future, is that many of them are black or white. It's either a utopia or it's misery. The real truth is that there's going to be both things in any future, just like there are now. Take your cinephiles, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.